Hi and welcome to the Rock and Rebel Radio podcast with me, Andy Phillips. And this week we have a little sort of after-show party uh, after the two-hour radio show I did, where I focused on the best progressive rock of 1970. And this is part of a, a short series, well, ten, um, which I'm doing, covering every year of that fantastic decade. And to discuss the show, the music, the musicians, and the times as well. I've got some very, very special guests, starting with guitarist extraordinaire Mr. Chris Gill, who's just released his latest album, Petrichor, under the band Rain Name. Uh, so welcome to you, Chris. No, very good to have you. Thank you. Um, next up, we've got uh, the, the man that Chris asked to provide the bass on the album, and that's the ex-Renaissance bass player and living legend, Mr. John Kent. Welcome, John. Hello, living legend. A little wave. Um, and lastly, but no means leastly, if that's even a word, is it a word? Leastly, anyway. Um, I've asked Elliot Min, keyboardist with one of my favourite progressive rock bands at the moment, the Far Meadow, to come and join the madness. Welcome, Elliot. Thank you. This is the Rock and Rebel Radio Show. Welcome, 1970s. Uh, the decade started in 1970, um, was when. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It was that funny, actually. Uh, I don't remember a great event. I remember starting work in 1970. I remember that was just about the time people started to talk about Yes and, and bands like that. I was already into King Crimson and Pink Floyd by then, and obviously Jimi Hendrix. Uh, so, yeah, it it started in 67 for me, the prog thing, with Pink Floyd. Uh, and then it ended for me around about 1978. And then yeah, after that, that it turned right. into something else after that. Important, an important decade, though, yeah, definitely. Because the tracks we, 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 we started with was uh, a yes track. We started with Every Days um, yeah. off Time in a Word. Do you, do you remember that coming out? Because to be honest, a lot, I think for, for me and Elliot, we are probably maybe 10 years younger. Yeah, I, was, um, I was eight in 1970. So, so yeah, you was, was eight. I was 10. Um, yeah, rub, rub it in, why don't you? Yeah, yeah I think <laughs> rubbing it in. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think this is this is this is quite good because you guys, you know, John and John and Chris, you guys would have uh, like, have experienced the time because you was you know twenty twenties, you know, in your twenties and things like that. So you would have heard these albums coming out, and you would have heard these musicians coming out, and you were playing at the time as well. Whereas for me and Elliot, this is we would have probably gone back. I mean, I, I listened to Every Days, for instance, you know, Time and the Word, the Yes album. Um, that would probably have been about 75 or 76 by the time I'd heard that. I mean, um, I mean, it was a much, but I mean, if, if you if thinking of influence, not influences here, but thinking back, if you look at uh, the first Genesis album and then you look at the first Yes album, to me, those didn't do anything for me, but it, it, there's a marked change, certainly on Genesis, for the track with The Knife, for example, yeah. a, a yeah. classic. You know that that's a Genesis track, whereas the original original album to me was was you know sort of influenced by Beatles, the Beatles sort of thing, but not not particularly didn't really have their style. Suddenly, yeah. yeah, so I think the first album to me, you could hear bits of where it was going, but but to me it wasn't. People like Chris Squire didn't have his he didn't have that stamp on on the music until until time. Yeah. Well, the first time I heard Yes was they did a single. They did a version of Something's Coming from West Side Story. Oh, I've heard, yeah, I've heard yeah. that. On Atlantic, and that's the first thing I heard, and I thought, yeah. wow, I've got to get myself some of this. 
Uh, uh, I, did. I mean, I bought Time in the Word the day it came out. Right. Um, uh, I was, I wasn't so much a fan of Chris at the time, although obviously, you know, I grew, I grew to become great friends with him. Unfortunately, unfortunately, but I mean, it's unfortunate that no longer that's going to be the case. But, but I was so inspired by what they were doing. I was, I mean, Genesis, yes, and as, and as um, Chris says, King Crimson. You know, I mean, I think we knew, like Elliot says, I think we knew what was coming. But it was still in its embryonic stage, and it had to settle down a bit, you know. But yeah, it was great times. Great times. I mean, I, I, I mean I, the, people say, you know, if, if you look at yes, to me, it is actually around. To, to me, that music is all around the bass. You know, that that, oh, yeah. that hated their style when when Chris Squire wasn't with them on some of the later, you know, on some of the, when they when they sort of split up and, and and whatever. You could tell you could tell there was something missing. Yeah, I mean, I, I got lost with Jordan when they'd be doing Anderson, Ravian, uh, Anderson, Wakeman, Bruford and Howe. Yeah. But it all went a bit pear-shaped. So I got a phone call in the bath from their manager. I was in the bath and he said, oh, yeah, I believe you can play all the yes stuff. I said, yeah, sure. <laughs> but Bruford, logistics-wise, they were in California and Bruford decided that he wanted to use Jeff Berlin. So I never got the gig. But, yeah, it's all built around the base. And, you know, Chris has influenced so many people. I mean, that, it, once you start playing a Rickenbacker, everybody says, oh, you sound like Chris Squire. Yeah. But that, of course, isn't the case, really. But yeah, I mean, I love Yes. Great yeah. band. Well, I noticed, I mean, I, I was sort of listening, just thinking about uh, Northern Lights, your, uh, your track that you <laughs> but, but I can hear some of those bass lines. It, you can hear that's kind of the fact that you're playing fifth notes and third notes on, in, in, uh, uh, as room. And it, it, that, to me, epitomizes that that sort of style the style that maybe you know yeah well, the thing with me with the renaissance was the fact that okay we didn't have an electric guitar mm. which was wonderful because it meant i could stretch out a bit because i started yeah. off as a guitarist um but with renaissance with it being so classically orientated when i was playing bass i was actually in my head playing a cello line mm. Or playing a brass part or something like that. I never actually played a bass part in my life. It's always an interpretation of something else to me. Right. That's what's great about working with Chris because we both come from that left field kind of way. Yeah. Thinking. That that makes sense. Now you've said that some of the bass that you've done that makes perfect sense. Mm. I can I can hear that now, particularly um, on some of the end endings that you've done where you've done that whoop, 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 those bits. That's that's almost like the cello. Yeah. No, oh, yeah, the old the old volume pedal. <laughs> but I think also that uh, yourself, uh, Chris Squire, actually turned the bass into a lead instrument. Because up yeah, at I mean, that Chris, point, Chris, I think Chris it was an instrument that was... It was yeah, yeah. It, well, as I say, with me, I was very lucky that I had a lot of space because we didn't initially have an electric guitar. So I, I had a much broader palette when it came to playing bass. You could use much more of the fretboard uh, and make more. Well, make, all I ever wanted to do was to be the best place play, bass player I could be. I wasn't worried about being famous or being in a popular band or whatever. It was just a case of, of taking what I had chosen as an instrument to see how far I could take it. I mean, I started off listening to Ray Brown, you know, an upright player. Peterson, you know, um, and then I like Jack Bruce and people like that. 
um but yeah i just saw most people then until like people like chris and humbly may i say myself came along the base was exactly what it said it was a base it stood at the back thought of the bar off you go try and lock in with the drummer but then all of a sudden you say you pushed it forward to a lead instrument and the ricky was probably the best instrument then to do that on yeah i i, th- I think maybe maybe i'm uh, my, my problem is also when i when i play keyboards i get criticized for using the bass quite a lot and, and making you know putting putting bass lines almost on onto it and it really upsets the bass player as you can imagine but but i don't know i think to me that's a lot of what stimulates the chords to me around oh around. absolutely yeah i mean it's very difficult to play the keyboards in i hate the term progressive but we're using it and here we are well, yeah, 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 you have to, you have to, you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I, it's, a, it's a problematic term, yeah, but, you yes, know, it's like, a problematic term, you have to, yes, you have to you in have the genre to, somewhere along the line. I find it very difficult to play keyboards without putting the bass end in, to yeah. be honest with you. It must be like, you know, just get rid of this hand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or just do chords and solos. That's the, uh... yeah. Well, I don't know. That, 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 that's the thing with me. It's very much around chords. I, I love, I love good, I love beautiful chord sequences. And, and mm. when you um, when you haven't got that, you know, you, you're restricted, not playing the bass. You've got to when you construct the chord, you've got to, you've got to have that bass line. Yeah, and of course, I think for a keyboard player, you are very much not governed, but it depends on the bassist that you've got with you as to what you can actually leave to the bassist. Yeah, you know, as to whether you've got to cover that base end of the of the music of the audio spectrum or whether you can just leave that in safe hands and get on with what you're doing best which is seeing how many notes you can get in a bar <laughs> <laughs> right. we were talking we were talking about that um uh, before that the, uh, i don't know how, how you feel about bands like dream theater uh john i mean what, what what's your what's your view on, on that mm-hmm. i don't know if you've heard um, people like Dream Theater, this kind of what they call progressive, progressive metal. Yes, I, have. I have, yeah. Um, the jury's still out on that one. I haven't listened to a lot. Mm. But, I, um, I, I find it very soul. I was, we were saying, I find it quite soulless. Although, you know, the Jordan Rudess, what an amazing keyboard player. What the whole band, they're just amazing musicians. But they, yeah. it just doesn't. There's no soul to it. It's all sort of very technical. And, and well, yeah, that's that's the that's the trouble, isn't it? As I say, I mean, that was you know, what I said about progressive in its it's in its earlier days. It did become a sort of a a show off platform for a lot of people. Look at what I can do. See how many notes I can play. You know, yeah. I mean, and then you go to people that take it really, really seriously, and they are incredibly technical. But it is there for a reason. We toured in the States a lot with Return to Forever. Oh, so right. Know, oh, wow. career, Al anyway, I mean, I never missed a gig of theirs. Whether we, went, we did a situation across the whole of the country where if they were more popular, they would headline. We were more popular, we would headline. And those guys are just phenomenal. Now, yeah. if, they, if they played like, you know, hemi-semi-demi-quavers, you know, all night, that's great because that's what that music needs. Yeah. But they weren't trying to show off. No, no. 
Yeah, it's, it's, the weird thing is that bands like A Return to Forever, um, Mahavishnu Orchestra, all those sort of things, you know, I mean, I, I love all that stuff. And I do put that in the show. I mean, I, I, I do have a, a sort of a love for that side of it, you know, the, um, uh, the more jazzy side. Uh, but that isn't that isn't the same as what you're saying about Dream Theater. I mean, I, I'm I'm sort of pretty much in the same camp as you, Elliot, with Dream Theater and bands like that. I th- I, th- I think they've got some great albums. They've done some great music. But sometimes you listen to it, and it just it just feels like it's just technical for the sake of technical. Yeah. yeah. And the yeah. melody goes out the window. Yeah. And um, yeah, you know, when when you're doing something where oh, let's put a bar of eleven in and a bar of thirteen in, and just and then just and then and, and you know just just because you can. It, yeah. it, if it doesn't need it, you know, why do it? I think the other thing is, I think the other thing with bands like that is, if you, if you, if you, let's say one of the guys from Dream Theater left and they picked up the phone now and asked me to go and play with Dream Theater, yeah. If they turn around to me and said, "Right, Chris, make it your own," how on earth would you do that? Because yeah. it's already so set in stone the way that it goes. Absolutely. If I tried to do anything different to vary from that path in any way at all. It would all completely fall apart like a house of cards. That's so right. it's set up, it's built up, and you can't change it. So when you go to play it live, it has to be exactly the same because if you don't do it, it just falls apart. Absolutely. There's no room to move. It's, it's, no it's, room to, you know, to, quote, to quote King Crimson, it's discipline, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Basically. Yeah. The whole thing is discipline, so the fun element really goes out of it. Yeah. Because you know yeah. what you can play in advance all the time. Yeah. I mean, did, yeah. did you ever? Did you ever play, John? Did you ever play with sort of, um, Frank Zappa, or uh, did you? Were you ever around? Or no, um, I went to see him, but mm. I never managed to be lucky enough to, um, to, to to share a stage with him. But I mean, that guy. Like, we had a drummer with with us for the last three years. I was in Renaissance. Uh, Gavin Harrison, who's now with Crimson. Oh. Fantastic drummer, possibly the best drummer in the world, and I say it not because he's a friend, but because he is. But he used to on the tour bus. He used to buy the 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 music books for Zappa, and on Joe's Garage, if you know the Joe's Garage album, you start reading through it, and there's a guitar part, and it's got eight bars of nothing written, and it says "Imply Cow." What (laughs) move? Imply Cow. Now, <laughs> I kid you not, eight bars of nothing imply cow written in big letters in the middle. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> Which Adrian Blue would have done fantastically, of course. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you imply cow? I mean, where would you, where would you even start with that? <laughs> Well, you probably turn up really loud, get your whammy bar, go. No, but I mean, you're talking about you're talking about discipline. I remember. I think this is a bit later than 1970, but um, there was a uh, the one size fits all album that uh, that track Inca Roads, and you listen to it on the album, you think, crikey, you know, they must have must have really. Uh, you know, there's no way they could play this live, and then you hear the live album, and it's played exactly as on on, on the record, and you think, "Whoa, how, yeah. how?" The, the guy is, you know, was really out there. I mean, you must have heard the Eddie Jobson stuff story when he wanted Eddie to play keyboards with him. He phoned him up in his hotel room, played something I don't know, 
bizarre down the phone to him and he said have you got a keyboard in the room he says i always have a keyboard and he said well play it back to me and he, he played something that was like ridiculous and eddie sort of like struggled and sort of was it we'll play again and he played it back he said yeah okay you're okay you, you got the gig <laughs> well I, I i actually talking about eddie jobson he's probably to me i may not sound like that but he's one of my biggest influences i, I think you know i love him but UK to me, um, it's just such a shame that they they only did a couple of albums. In fact, my album with them. Yeah. Yeah, brilliant, absolutely brilliant. I still play it now. Yeah. Anyway. I went, yeah, I went to see UK in nineteen seventy eight. Um Did you? It was uh Holsworth, Bruford, Wetton and Andrew Jobson. Yeah, and uh, it was that uh, they, they they played in this. I was living in Texas at the time. I went to see them at Rice University in Houston, right? And I had the T-shirt and everything, and and everything that they did on that album, including John Wayne's woo that he did on the bass and other, he did that perfectly live every time. Yeah. And yeah. that's still to this day one of the best gigs I've ever been to. And I was only sitting about twenty feet away from Alan Holdsworth, watching him really closely what he was doing. And I still have no idea how he did what he did. No idea whatsoever how he did. Such a, such an incredible guitarist, though. Yeah. Just an incredible guitarist. Yeah, amazing. And yeah. As well. I mean, just and it's playing. But I, you know, you just never hear that sort of stuff. You know, you just never hear that sort of stuff. It was. Well, it's iconic. We did a couple of concerts with Mahavishnu. I just stood there and watched my cloth and thinking, what? Yeah. What? <laughs> And he made it look so damn easy. Yeah, yeah, I think it was the, it was the uh, you know, when he was in his sort of um, mantra mode. And yeah, just, the white flowing white gear you know. on, and he just stood there and it just flowed from. Is that uh, the time when he used to use a double neck? You know, the the yeah, the, 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 the yeah. yeah. Absolutely incredible. I mean, all those sort of guitars. That's why I love it, you know. And, and I mean, Ellen, we were talking uh, about Holdsworth the other day about um, uh, it bites and things like that. You know, oh. must have must have been must have been influenced by. Yeah, Holdsworth. I mean, well, yeah, uh, what's his name? Francis Dunnery. I yeah, mean, Francis Dunnery. Yeah, you listen to some, but it's not the same. You know, when you hear Holdsworth, he, I don't know, some of those chords. Apparently, the, the story goes. You, you, you guys are probably know better than me, but. The story goes that between Dave Stewart, you know, when they were in the Bruford band, between Dave Stewart and Holdsworth, they would, uh, I think they used to compete with who could find the most um, most obscure chords to, to play. Because <laughs> they just, you know, you listen to them, I think, how? Where does that chord? What is that chord? <laughs> yeah, I know. Amazing. It's uh, another band that we uh, we had on the uh, on the show, on the 70s show, was um, uh, Van de Graaff Generator. Oh, yeah, Peter Hamill. Yeah, so Van Graaff Generator. Um, big favourite of mine, which is why I keep on putting them on the show, because I bloody love them. Um, and uh, Chris, you, you, um, you, you typed something in yesterday about uh, Van Graaff Generator, getting you back into it. Is that Was that you or was it you, John? I can't remember. It wasn't you. Yeah, it was me, yeah. It was um, I, went, yeah. I, I went to see them... Uh, but I think I was from in 1970, 71, 72, and 73, I think. And um, it was a Friars, John, you know, Friars. Friars, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I went to see it there. And um, unbelievable. I mean, I mean, David Jackson is the only guy I've ever seen that plays a couple of saxophones at the same time. You know, yeah. yeah. Just amazing. 
Peter Howell sings with his head to one side like this all the time, but but somehow it gets the note out, you know. And um, yeah. I think I told you last time I had a conversation, Andy, I, I was on the Dodgems with him in Western Supermare on the pier. Yeah. Right, yeah. Um, because they, they were doing the Winter Gardens there. And I went there to see the gig, and I was killing some time, and so were they. And we all met on the pier at the same time. We had to go on the Dodgems, and um, <laughs> that, that was amazing. But David Jackson is still doing stuff now, but he's also got this uh, gadget that is made that autistic kids can put their hands in and make music. Oh, you know, oh. Oh. oh, that's amazing. Yeah. I saw that. Yeah, it was on one of those things where they not what was it on click. It was one of those shows where they have new gadgets on us. Well, that is brilliant, that is. Yeah, it was really good. And it, it's almost like different colored lights. And depending on which light you put your hand in, it makes a note. So it's autistic. Right. Right. And they're I think I've seen that. Did, did uh, Jean-Michel Jarre use that on stage? I'm sure I've seen oh, yeah. him do, like, oh, you know, yeah. in line. Yeah, I didn't know he was autistic, though. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it, it, it might have done, yeah, because I, I mean, nobody's got more lights than John Shells are, have they, really? But, um, <laughs> but no, I just, I just remember seeing seeing that. Oh, and, he did and, have this massive sort of fake keyboard that went all the way around him in a set, like a rainbow. And yeah. it had all got different mm. colour flashing lights on it and things. It was a bit like painting by numbers, but for keyboard players. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I suppose uh, when, you're on, when you're on your own, you get to amuse yourself somehow. Absolutely. I saw David Jackson playing with um, the Dave Cross band. Well, I went to a, uh, it was the Cambridge Rock Festival, I think, and he mm-hmm. was um, he was there playing. And that, that, they were really good because obviously it was a, they, they did a lot of King Crimson numbers. So they did um, they did uh, uh, Red and they did uh, uh, Starless, I think. And, and a few oh, I love ones. Red. I love Red. It's so evil. Crimson album again. I know it's later, but uh, to me that was a that was a really great album. Even though there were only three of them. Well, say that was just that was Wet Wet and Frip and Bruford, wasn't it? Yeah, 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 it was. Yeah, because yeah. yeah. Wet did all the vocals on that as well, didn't he? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I was privileged to see UK um, just. Before Wet and Died, actually, um, and it was um, at the Chelsea under the bridge. Uh, uh, Chelsea, oh, I know. yeah. And well, John, uh, John played the Renaissance for a while, you know, for about six months. Did he? Yeah, in the very he early days. He did. Yeah, he did. Yeah, I went, I went to John's funeral. Was that before you or after you, John? That was just before me. Right. Okay. Yeah, well, he's played know, good. Yeah. Obviously, it was Uriah Heap, wasn't he, before that? And then, That's right, yeah. So, like, all these, ama- all these amazing players that, like, turn up in bands you wouldn't expect them to. <laughs> you know, and then he goes from King Crimson to Asia. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was time I made a lot of money. I I went, yeah. I went to see uh, Bill Bridgeford uh, with Earthworks. Um, oh, yeah. Some, it was several years ago, obviously, because he's retired. But I asked him at the time, I said, are, are you going to go? And I think it must have been, yeah, I, I can't remember what, what year it was. But I said, are you um, are you ever going to do some more Crimson? Are you ever going to go back and, you know, reform or, or whatever with, a, with, a, with that, that sort of um, uh, lineup? He said, uh, oh, he said, it's so, so 20, he said, so 21st century. 
he's quite he's apparently, apparently according to Gavin, I was speaking to him the other day, Gavin Harrison. Apparently, you know, I said, you know, what's it like working with Robert? It's an absolute nightmare. <laughs> he says, because he'll just look at you and say, well, in this section, just play what you think should be in there. Doesn't give you any clue at all. <laughs> just do what you think's right. And then, of course, you do it. And he says, well, that's not what, that's not what I want. <laughs> No, I could I could imagine him being quite an exacting uh, an exacting person. Yeah, um, I've seen the ways uh, you know on stage where um, I think someone was taking photos. He doesn't like the limelight, does he? Or he doesn't yeah. like And there was someone taking photos, and they stopped the whole gig. And um, and uh, he said, you know, until I get that camera from the film, we're not playing. Which yeah, is, I know. So, <laughs> Oh, prima donna. It's a bit, it's a bit sort of mad because that's what you expect people to do is to take some sort of memory away with it, you know. And that's what I just find it, I find it really hard to play for someone like because, if it, and I've seen him live a couple of times with various in, incarnations. In fact, I saw him playing with Adrian Blue, and Adrian Blue was playing the drums, he was really good on drums too. Really? And uh, but he's got this intense day, he's watching the whole. Everybody's playing with his like he doesn't take his eyes off them hardly hardly ever. No. And I'd find that really a bit unnerving actually. Mm. It's a bit intimidating, isn't it? Yeah, I, I would find that a bit strange, yeah. Because yeah. if you watch him, he just watches him. But I can imagine playing with Zappa was was, was equally uh oh <laughs> get anything wrong there and <laughs> sort of I mean, you know what kind of guy you're up against with Zappa. I mean it, it he played Pennsylvania University and just for a laugh put some LSD in the water coolers. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you will enjoy this. Yeah. Oh, my. That, is not good. <laughs> that is not good. I mean, I saw an interview with Eddie Jobson. He was saying when he played with Zappa, there was something about, um, he said, you know, he was only a, a kid. He said he grew up more in that in those few years or whatever, or the year that he was playing with Zappa, or than he than he had in his whole life. <laughs> so he saw some things that he'd never seen before. <laughs> yeah, that, that that I can imagine. Yeah. On this, on the on the thing about Van der Graaff, though, Van der Graaff generator, Elliot. I know that when we spoke, you said that you know, yeah, they're not the sort of band that that is you know, um, you know, pricks your interest too much. No. You know. No, I mean, am I, I, am I beginning to change your mind a little bit? You, you are actually. Uh, I mean, like that track, um, Kill, uh, was it Killer? Was, yeah, Killer. Yeah. That that um that that I I, I sort of remember that. Yeah. Like, it's lodged in my in my in my brain somewhere. But it's actually I can see I can it's starting to grow on me. I think uh, is what I would say. I've but it was never, it was, they were never a band. I, I think another. So I, I think another thing with Van de Graaff is that. Um, they're one of those bands that, if you listen to their albums, they're really, really good. They, they really are. But you need to see them live to really get right. the vibe because the albums, yeah. are, the, the albums are all neat and tidy, everything swept up and cleaned up and polished yeah. and all made beautiful. When you see them live and the, the bass player is not controlled by anybody, uh, the sound volumes aren't controlled and, and EQ'd and all the rest of it, it's a completely different ball game. Okay. And... Um, 
and, and the, the sound that they make, it, it just hits you like a bus. Whereas listening yeah. to an album on, on, on headphones, that ain't going to happen. Um, and I think a lot of bands are like that. You listen to them on record, they're, they're too clean, too yeah. neat and tidy. You go, yeah. And so you don't really appreciate what they're trying to do. Um, but you go and see them live, and just bam, it's straight in your face. Of, Whoa, what's going on here? It's, it's just amazing. It's just a, just a yeah, wave. It happens with a lot of bands, don't you think? That I mean, okay, you do your albums and all the rest of it. I always thought that with, with, with Renaissance. Our albums were, were, were good. Don't get me wrong. Um, not all of them, but I mean, most of them were good. But we were so much better live than we ever were recorded. And that, and that, I think, I think that's the the, the message. I, I actually used to get quite upset with um, when you saw Genesis live. They're, they're very formulaic. I mean, they, they, you know, Banks doesn't improvise much at no. all. Um, and yet, you see someone like Yes or yourselves, and and, and there's, there's that kind of improvisation. And that, to me, is what. Why would you go and see a band live if all they're going to do is play? What's on the record? Yeah, I think Genesis were more sort of um, uh, gritty. I think in the early days, you know, there was a, a an element of playing around a little bit because they used to they used to expand tracks and things like that. Uh, but I think when they got to sort of seventy, probably Lamb Lies Downtime, it was like this is how it's got to be. And and I think Banks is like that though. He's, he's, yeah, he's, it's very tight. It's got to be this way, you know. Um, I mean, it's it's all completely controlled in terms of that. This is this is how it's going to go. This is the, you know the progressions are, are such that you can't. There's no room to kind of go out and do some sort of improvisation. No, Genesis aren't an improvisational band at all. Um, yeah, yes. I, I, mean, I love them, and they're one of my favourites. But yeah. they're, they're absolutely not. Yeah. 